0: Namaste from Nepal. I'm Ross. This is installment 15 of the Peripatetic Podcast. So last week was about the Spanish flu, and I'd said that this week I was going to talk about the future and what I expect to come out of the coronavirus. However, I've realized that I have a lot more to say about the Spanish flu, so this is actually going to be a part two. And last week, I talked mostly about the spring, a few instances in the spring and the early first wave of the Spanish flu. So this week, I'm going to talk about more about the second and third wave, which were actually the most deadly parts of that particular pandemic. And we're going to learn a lot more about the effects of the Spanish flu. So thanks for listening. Let's get started. Now, I don't have a background in biology, so some of my explanations might be inaccurate or wildly oversimplified at a minimum. But the and I'm just regurgitating what I heard from my source, which is again Bruce Florey from the Great Courses lectures on YouTube. So the flu is an RNA virus and sometimes a process called antigenic shifts can occur, which causes the virus to mutate and there's mutated strains that get released. And Bruce Fleury describes it as throwing a hammer at a jet engine. Usually, throwing the hammer will break the engine, but once out of a million times, it changes the engine for the better. And usually the body can get rid of the virus, but every once in a while, a different version emerges. That version may be stronger, it may be weaker, it may spread easier, it may be whatever. It, it changes in some way. Last week, I mostly talked about the first wave, which was the spring of 1918. And then the curve started to drop. The number of cases started to go down. The number of deaths started to go down. People let their guards down a bit. And then troops started coming back in the summer of 1918. And in August, there was a, tr- a ship that unloaded, and people, people were getting sick on the ship. So as soon as it landed at New York... People sprinted off of the gangplank and spread out into the city. There was no controlling it. And all of a sudden you had 200-plus infected people returning with a mutated form of the disease brought back from Europe. So what they brought back with them was far deadlier than before, and it spread throughout the country within weeks. The flu eventually made its way to Camp Ratner in Illinois, which had 40,000 troops, there was a Colonel Charles Hagedorn, who was the camp commanding officer, and he was a real arrogant guy. He ignored advice from the medical staff. Everyone was telling him, the army, big army was telling him to spread out the troops quartered there to, you know, implement social distancing, essentially, in today's terminology. And one sick soldier was hospitalized after an exercise with troops from another base on September 21st. One week later, 4,100 soldiers were hospitalized with the flu. Now, Colonel Hagedorn continued to ignore calls for quarantine, and he even was sending troops from his base to other bases. In one particular instance, 3,000 soldiers left on a train from Camp Ratner to another camp in Georgia. And in the time it took to arrive in Georgia... Over 2,000 of the soldiers were sick, and over 10% of them eventually died. At a certain point, after several hundred deaths, Colonel Hagedorn told his staff to leave the office one day. He said, everyone go home, you're done for the day. He shut himself into his office, and he shot himself. It was so bad that some of the Army doctors were longing to return to France And to the battlefield, because they said that that was easier than what they were dealing with, with the thousands of flu victims. And there were rumors going around. People were saying that the virus was a German biological weapon. There was all sorts of conspiracies. And it it sounds familiar to today. Everyone, you know, has these wild ideas of the origins of the flu. Public health signs started to get posted everywhere to wear gauze masks out in public and to avoid crowds. And tons of snake oil salesmen came out. Snake oil cures like wearing garlic around your neck, gargling with disinfectants like bleach, stuffing salt up your nose, and even magic charms that you could carry around, which supposedly prevented you from contracting the flu. Public gatherings ground to a total halt. Sports music, church, all that kind of stuff that we're seeing today. People stopped hugging and kissing. Everyone had a story of someone they knew that contracted the illness. It was just so widespread. And there was stories in the, in the papers about families who would wake up fine in the morning and then by the evening, every single one of them was dead. So just absolute panic. The most famous city case study was that of Philadelphia because it had a population of 1.7 million, with 300,000 of them having been added in just the previous several months for the war efforts. You know, shipbuilding, munition manufacturing, all sorts of industry around the war effort. And it was so crowded that some apartments in the city would have one mattress shared by three people. So someone would do their shift, they'd come back and sleep, And then they'd swap out with the next guy and then the next guy. And then these little tiny apartments that are normally meant for one or two people would have six or more people in them. It was absolute tight, tight, tight quarters. So on top of that, the city's health director, Dr. Wilhelm Krusen, ignored early warnings about the epidemic. He didn't stock up on medication. He didn't implement social distancing. He didn't alert hospitals or doctors about anything to come. He he knew that this epidemic was on the horizon and he totally dropped the ball on starting the starting people to get prepared for this. The prime example of that was the Liberty Loan parade which he knew he'd been told he should advise city advisors to cancel the event and the navy was trying to get the city to cancel the event. It was going to be the largest Parade. It was the largest parade in city history, to sell war bonds, to boost morale for the war, and yeah, it ended up happening on the 28th of September, 1918. Hundreds of thousands of people turned out to watch, and as of the day of the parade, there was 200 known cases in the city. And now the flu takes 24 to 48 hours to incubate, and within that period, the cases started just exponentially increasing. It got so bad that nurses had to begin putting people into body bags while they were still alive. Hospitals were losing up to 50% of their doctors and nurses to the flu. So medical students were getting called up who were only who were a year or two away from completing their, their education and they were getting called up to act as full doctors. All businesses were shut down Nearly a 1,000 phone operators got the flu, so government, the government was urging people to only take emergency calls, only connect emergency calls, and so the phone operators were actually disconnecting homes, just, like, canceling their service for anyone that was making non-essential calls during this time. For the city of Philadelphia, the deaths peaked about three weeks after that parade, And the the peak death rate was on October 18th, when 4,500 people died in a single day. And when all all was said and done, 500,000 were infected in the city of of 1.7 million, and nearly 13,000, 12,900 were dead. So the second wave was short, like we're talking about a month, but it was super intense So the country as a whole fell victim to dropping their guard, thinking that this flu was over. And then, as we saw, the second wave was what really got people. They returned to business as usual when this thing wasn't over yet. So after that fall of 1918, the rates decreased a bit, and then there was a third wave in early 1919, And this one was actually less lethal. It mutated a bit, and it was actually a less lethal form of the flu. And President Woodrow Wilson was in France for peace talks, and he actually contracted the disease. And he continued the negotiations, the peace talks, while he was sick in bed. And he'd been fighting hard for a lot of conditions that he actually ended up conceding while he was laying in bed. And some historians say that Him conceding on those points set the conditions for World War II. And I'm not exactly sure what those conditions were. I didn't dig that deep into it, but it's an interesting thing to point out. I'm now going to talk about some of the big differences in the way that Americans lived in 1918 versus the way Americans live now. So in 1918, there was little to no reliance on a global network for food and medicine. For example, produce wasn't shipped in from, let's say you lived in New York. You're not getting your produce from California or South America like you do today. Your produce was grown within the state, maybe one state away at most. But yeah, everything is much more reliant on your local community and your state. And your medicine, same thing. It wasn't imported from India like it is today. Your IV bags, they're not all made in Puerto Rico like they are today which, by the way, that was a huge problem when Hurricane Maria happened. Um, That's something to look into if if you haven't read about that. So the system was far less fragile than it is today. As recently as 1957, the typical family, American family, cooked 90% of their meals at home, and less than 20% of the food that they stored was perishable. Compare that today, 2020, about 60% of the meals are eaten at home. That means 40%, obviously, are eaten at restaurants, depending on somebody else. And about half of the food that we store is perishable. It's in our freezer, or it's fresh produce. So most families have little to no storage. Also back then, 50% of Americans lived in rural areas So about half and half, city versus rural split. Today, it's about 80-20. 80% live in cities, 20% are rural. So Americans back then were much more likely to live on a self-sufficient farm or, at a minimum, have a garden providing fresh produce and to raise animals that provided meat, eggs, milk, you know, the necessities. And every home, it was like standard practice for every home to have larders or pantries as we call them today, where they'd be storing like several months worth of canned and preserved food, mostly made from their own gardens. And again, nowadays, that just doesn't happen. So what were the economic effects of the Spanish flu? I couldn't find many hard numbers about the economic effects, but estimates are that the global economic output was shrunk by about 5%. And there w- the hard, concrete examples are mail service, garbage services, public utilities all came to a halt. And then, as now, movie theaters, bowling alleys, bars and restaurants, department stores were the hardest hit. Thousands of them closed their doors. I don't have a hard number or a percentage that... That were, but those entire industries were almost wiped out for, there's a huge vacuum. So all these new restaurants and bars and entertainment facilities had to come in and fill the void in the wake of the Spanish flu. There was only one industry that benefited, and that was the drug industry. So I think that we will probably see very similar effects from COVID-19. And also, I'm, as I mentioned in the previous show, the majority of the victims were 18 to 40 years old. So we're talking people with young children, new families, people in the prime of their life. And so thousands of people were left widowed and thousands of children were left orphaned. And that had huge, huge effects that lasted for, I mean, decades after that. So... All of those things are very possible that we'll see from COVID-19, though on a much smaller scale. So that's it for this show. I hope this finds you doing well. I hope you're safe. I hope you're healthy. Continue your social distancing. Things here in Kathmandu are great. I've had a, a lot of fun. Been doing a lot of cooking, a lot of reading. And this week, assuming... Public transportation gets back to normal and stuff. I'm planning another world packer experience on the outskirts of Kathmandu. There's this little farm that I'm looking at spending a week or 10 days at. And, uh, yeah, I'll keep you updated as I go. Thanks for listening.